He said he eats for his microbiome, which I thought was kind of funny. But hey, you've got a hundred trillion of these guys inside of you. Like maybe you should think about how you're eating for them. If you're eating hamburgers, French fries, and sodas and stuff, you're not eating for a good part of that microbiome. You want the gangsters to take over, and they're gonna make you not feel so great. So if you want the good guys to really predominate, then you need to eat a wide range of vegetables and greens and all sorts of root vegetables. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Hey guys, Dr. Emily Kybert here with Muscle Medicine Podcast. Today, we sit down with Dr. Vincent Pedre to talk about one of the hottest topics in the health space right now, your gut, and how to create a healthy microbiome. We answer the questions of what is a gut microbiome, why you can't have a happy brain without a happy gut, Did you know that there's over 100 trillion bacteria in your gut microbiome, how the breakdown of gluten impacts your thyroid and what exactly is leaky gut and how do you know when you have it? Vincent has a great program and book called Happy Gut where he has a protocol, care, cleanse, activate, restore, enhance to really take your health to the next level starting with your gut microbiome. So going to try something new this week. I wanted to read a review from one of our listeners because it means so much to have people review the podcast, let us know what they think. Someone used poop emojis, <laughs> love it. They use it in a good way. But this is from Miss HGC. Complex concepts made simple. I love listening to these podcasts with Dr. Kybert. She has a way of breaking down so many challenging concepts that makes them totally accessible to me. I learned so much. I'm never bored. Thank you so much. If you guys love this podcast, go to iTunes, subscribe, rate and review, just share the message about muscle medicine, which is really all about how do you feed, rehab, train the largest organ in the body, the muscle. So let me know what you think of Vincent's episode and can't wait to hear what you guys have to say. Dr. Vincent Pedre, so excited to have you on Muscle Medicine Podcast. We met a couple years ago at a Boule Health Talk, and your talk just totally kind of exploded my brain on the gut microbiome. And so many, it's such a hot topic. Cool. The gut. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know how many people actually really, when people are talking about the gut and the microbiome, what is really getting talked about. Yeah. And, and if people really understand what the microbiome is, you know, and what, what we're talking about when we refer to the microbiome. 
So one thing that I say, and thank you for having me on the podcast, is that we are basically living in a microbial milieu, or you could think of your body as a microbial soup. And we've got microbes living on our skin, inside our noses, inside our mouths, in the gums, inside the lungs, in our gut, of course, but even in the palms of the hand. So there are all these zones in the body. So it's almost like the body is a conglomeration of countries and each zone has its own specific bacteria. Why the, the gut microbiome is, is such a focus, such a hot topic is because that is the biggest reservoir of bacteria in the body. Anywhere in the body. Anywhere in the body. Wow. So the large intestine has an estimated 100 trillion, you know, up to 100 trillion bacteria. And as a comparison, there are only 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So I always say, and I think I probably used this when, when you were at my talk at Bollet, that we're each carrying around our own personal galaxy. Just within our gut. Within our gut. Yeah. And it's those hundred trillion organisms living in the large intestine and their metabolites. So what they produce as byproducts of their own metabolism are also regulating processes in our body that range from blood sugar balancing to how your brain retains memory and neuroplasticity. They talk about like a certain number of, was it like serotonin transmitters are in the gut? Serotonin receptors. Yeah. So we know that there are more serotonin receptors in the gut than there are in the brain. We always think of serotonin as the happy molecule. Yeah. And everybody knows that I'm the happy gut doctor. You are the happy gut doctor. Uh, You can't have a happy brain without a happy gut. Right. So we, we know there's a direct connection between the brain and the gut and... Everybody's heard of leaky gut syndrome, for, but for those of that don't understand it, what it means is that the gut lining, which I've a lot of times described as a cheesecloth, uh, uh, everybody kind of knows what a cheesecloth is and yeah. has really tiny holes, and we use it to strain things out. Well, our gut lining needs to keep all the bad stuff out in the lumen, the bacteria, the bugs, maybe parasites, things that are all kind of part of this big ecosystem inside of us. So when your gut becomes leaky, it's like taking that cheesecloth and poking holes in it. And now it has bigger holes that are not going to protect you and are going to allow bigger molecules to get through, for example, like partially digested proteins Mm. from food that you've eaten. So now you are a person living in this world that perhaps has been on antibiotics, has had pain, so has taken over-the-counter ibuprofen for the pain. Perhaps at some point they've had some sort of traveler's diarrhea or intestinal infection. They live in a stressed out life with a job and maybe kids or who knows. Yeah. And all these reasons, all these particular insults affect the permeability of the gut and cause leaky gut syndrome. So how does someone know if they have leaky gut? That is the thing is that you don't know directly that you have leaky gut, but you can know that you suffer from symptoms that are related to a leaky gut. 
So what would some of those symptoms be? So an example is conditions like allergies, asthma, but even kind of more vague things like fatigue, um, chronic muscle aches, mm, yeah, brain fog. Probably one of the most telltale things or telltale signs of leaky gut syndrome is eating a meal and feeling like you're intoxicated afterwards. Like you feel like this wave of sleepiness and you can't stay awake. You know, they say that could be the carbs, but depending on what you've eaten, um, it could also be because you have leaky gut syndrome. And what's happening is what we call postprandial, post-meal endotoxemia. So this lipopolysaccharide, which is basically a lipid molecule combined with sugar molecules that are part of the outer membrane of bacteria that live in the large intestine. As they die, these, these lipopolysaccharides get sloughed off. We call them also endotoxin mm. because they act like a toxin in the body. And if you have a leaky gut, more of that is going to get into your bloodstream. So you can have this postprandial, post-meal endotoxemia, translocation of endotoxin from inside the gut into the bloodstream. And it is one of the most potent activators of the immune system. So it lights up your immune system. I used to call it like back in the post 9-11 days, it's like having a terror alert. Mm. Like your body does that. So if an invasion is coming through the gut, it's not just going to stay in the gut because your body's going to send system-wide signals alerting all of your white blood cells, your immune system, that there is an attack going on in the body. The problem with that is that then there are cytokines, so inflammatory signals that are going throughout and they're going to increase the permeability of the blood-brain barrier. This is really traveling from the gut to the brain, or sorry, through the blood to the brain. To the brain. Yeah. And we know that endotoxin is going to exacerbate that and that in fact that there are receptors for endotoxin in the hypothalamus in the brain and the receptor is called, uh, what we call these special receptors, they're called toll-like receptors. And toll-like receptors control signaling pathways in the cell, but this is toll-like receptor 4. So this one actually controls an inflammatory pathway that's controlled by another protein called NF-kappa-B. Mm. So in summary, endotoxin gets into your body, it stimulates this toll-like receptor in all sorts of tissue, liver, muscle, fat, brain, stimulates an inflammatory cascade within the cell that tells the body to produce inflammation. So that affects your brain in the sense that it causes mental fog, it will increase insulin resistance, so it messes with your blood sugar levels. Yeah. And they find that endotoxemia precedes weight gain, obesity, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, diabetes. Wow. So thus a connection between gut health, the health of the gut lining, leaky gut syndrome, and diseases that we see everywhere. So when you ask, you know, what are the symptoms of leaky gut syndrome, you can probably pick out people walking on the street now that have probably at some point suffered from leaky gut and are suffering from the consequences of that, whether it's because their metabolism is messed up and they've gained weight, they have diabetes, they've got some sort of autoimmune condition. We know that autoimmunity is linked to the gut. And if you think about it, 
anything that is going to kind of scramble the immune system and set it off or overactivate it could end up causing an autoimmune condition because eventually the body just starts breaking down and attacking self. Right. It stops losing the ability to regulate. And they think that some of this could come through molecular mimicry or perhaps molecules that combine together. So part body protein, part food protein that then combine gets attacked by the immune system because the immune system is is quite adept at creating immune response to proteins. Yeah. And then you have a reaction to body tissue. And this, for example, happens with gluten, with gliadin. Yes. I was trying to explain this to someone today and I totally butchered it. <laughs> like the the mimicry, the the mimicking. Can you can you tell us <laughs> like specifically with so gluten there, what happens? So with gluten there's a protein called gliadin. And that protein gets broken down by an enzyme that's found in pretty much every cell in the body. It's found in the brush border cells. It's called tissue transglutaminase. And sometimes when it's breaking it down, it forms a chimeric molecule where it's part tissue transglutaminase with the gliadin protein. And the white blood cells gobble that up. Mm-hmm. And then they react to basically to surface proteins on both sides or amino acid combinations. And it turns out that there are tissues in the body that express tissue transglutaminase. And the one that we know that is particularly affected by gluten is the thyroid. Yes. Yeah. And thyroid tissue expresses tissue transglutaminase. So my theory, even though no one's quite found it Mm -hmm. yet, is that the autoimmune attack starts in the gut with tissue transglutaminase kind of being kind of an an innocent bystander, but then we develop antibodies to that. And perhaps through that attack, then break down the thyroid tissue. And no one's ever looked at this, but I theorize that there's probably something like leaky thyroid syndrome. Interesting. And and what that means is that the thyroid starts to break down and we get exposed to proteins that are protected inside the thyroid cells like thyroperoxidase, thyroglobulin, and we form antibody responses to that and that's how Hashimoto's evolves. So that could be one way yeah. and connection between gluten and Hashimoto's. Now there's many causes for things, so it's yeah. never... It's always kind of sexy to think of the one cause for the one disease, but the same like way that the magic magic thing, to yeah, get rid the of. magic bullet <laughs> that you know, if you fix this, then you're going to fix everything. And guess what? It doesn't work that way. Yeah, and it, you probably know, like, it, you're not going to have somebody come in with a sports injury, and you'll be like, oh, it's your right piriformis, and all we have to do is fix the piriformis, and you'll be great. Right, no. It's, it's always the, the interrelationship between things. Yeah. And again, it's, it's all about interrelationship when we talk about the gut and the microbiome, because we're living in this symbiotic soup that I started talking about in the beginning. And what we know is that it's not so much about not having bad guys, 
as much as it is about having the right balance of the good guys. The good bacteria. The good bacteria. So even in a healthy person's gut, we're going to see a mix of what we call good bacteria and pathogenic bacteria or bad bacteria. But it's having the right balance between the two that creates health. Interesting. So, you know, you kind of mentioned some different factors that can lead to gut permeability, leaky gut. So I know for myself, having a three-year-old, anytime we take him to the doctor, I tell myself, okay, we're going to try and avoid antibiotics unless he absolutely needs it because I don't want to destroy his gut microbiome. And good for you for doing that. But I don't know if like, if it's, is it literally like one dose of antibiotics could totally shift the microbiome? Like just one even factor? One, even one dose yeah. could have a powerful effect, but obviously a course. Yeah. So for example, a five-day course of Cipro right. has been shown to alter the microbiome in such a way that it will take 12 months to recover. Oh my goodness. A five-day course of Zithromycin, which is a Z-Pack. Yep. Everybody's everybody goes to the doctor and says, "Hey, give me a Z-pack just to knock this out." Totally. Yeah. And most of the time what they're asking to be knocked out by an antibiotic is a viral infection that would actually have gotten better within 5 to 7 days on its own. Yeah. You know, but you take the Z-pack and you think, "Well, it made me better." People don't know how do we really analyze cause and effect. Right. You know, so that's uh, sometimes what I call attribution error, which as a health practitioner, I'm very keen to because as diagnosticians, we have to avoid attribution errors and we have to be very careful about what we think is associated and what is cause and effect for things. Or sometimes, you know, you may miss something, but a five-day course of uh, a Z-pack, six months to recover from that. That's and, wild. And no, one, no one ever tells is, you this. <laughs> but and but this is the thing, is that no one's going to have just one course of antibiotics. Right. The reason I got into this is I had probably three or four courses of antibiotics every single year during my teenage years. Wow. And by the end of it, I had developed leaky gut syndrome. Now, we didn't know this at the time. Right. I couldn't gain weight. I couldn't put on muscle mass. And I had developed a sensitivity to gluten and dairy, and yet those were the two top food groups in my diet as a teenager, you know, as any teenager. Yeah, yeah. Milk, dairy, milkshakes, ice cream, uh, cereal, um, yeah, sugar, bread, all that stuff. I was eating all the wrong things, and my microbiome was wiped out. So every time you're on a course of antibiotics, you don't recover to the point that you were before. So you keep kind of... Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I think of how many courses. My mom's a pharmacist. (laughs) So it's like, I have a cough. She bring bring home antibiotics. Oh, yes. Um, Self-prescribed. Yeah. And she, you know, she was just doing the best she could with the information she had. But yeah, I think of the multiple rounds of antibiotics I had over the years. And that's crazy that you, you never kind of restore to what you had previously. Not completely. Not completely. I mean, you can get close, yeah. but you're not going to get completely back to where you were. That said, I mean, after years and years of multiple antibiotics and pediatricians telling my parents that my immune system was weak, mm. um, my immune system wasn't weak. It's that I had leaky gut. I was fighting a war constantly in my digestive system. So it was as if 
you're, you've sent all the troops to your gut and there's not enough people to, not enough white blood cells to patrol the, the sinuses and the other parts to get rid of infections before they get too bad. Yeah. So I would pick up everything that was out there. At one point they were giving me immune boosting shots with immunoglobulins. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty crazy stuff. And coincidentally, when I did my first dietary change in medical school, I took out dairy. That was the first time I saw the frequency with which I got sick suddenly drop. And I started making a correlation like, oh, wow, like I'm eating less dairy. I'm not having milk. And suddenly I don't get sick as often. Is there a connection there? I was always kind of interested in food, but that really seeing that in me and I, I always trying to find the heck of how am I not going to get sick all the time? That was my goal and figuring out, taking food out. And now I know because I had become sensitive to dairy and that was inhibiting my immune system. It was, uh, it was occupying my immune system in a way that I couldn't pay attention to other things. So it wasn't that I had some sort of problem with my immune system. Mm -hmm. It was more that I was creating a problem with my immune system by what I was eating. Yeah. And because of all the antibiotics I had been on. So over my 20s, I was on much less antibiotics. And now in my 40s, I don't think I've ever been on an antibiotic. Yeah. You know, if I, if I take something, it's, uh, I try to take natural things, yeah. colloidal silver. Now... All that said, for anyone who's listening, antibiotics can save lives. So sometimes people think, well, I'm talking against antibiotics. I'm completely against them. No, I am for the judicious use of antibiotics, the responsible use of antibiotics by health practitioners. But I think that there is an overprescribing of antibiotics going on in our profession. And part of it is because we let patients control us rather than you know, you don't want the patient to get mad at you and say, well, I'm not going to give you a Z-Pack because you have a virus and you don't really need something. They're going to, you I know, think. walk out your door and say, this doctor doesn't know what he's doing because we're living in this time where, you know, people think they know a lot about like, health, but yeah. without actually being health practitioners. So I commend you for trying to avoid antibiotics with your daughter. And, you know, God forbid there is some sort of bad bacterial infection, then you have yeah. to give them. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So for someone who wouldn't know that was in your situation, they would potentially take a round of antibiotics. They would be getting sick all the time, which you then think, okay, I need to take something to not get sick. Yeah, they get sick. recurrent sinus infections. Yeah. And that's a sign that your immune system has started to break down. Yeah. So the way out of that, and the, it was part of the reason that I wrote my book, Happy Gut, is to really... First, cleanse yourself of all the inflammatory foods, like really the, go on a cleanse. And my program is 28 days. Then promote the good bacteria. And the cleanse fades, what do you suggest kind of removing? The biggest things are gluten, yeah. dairy, yep. soy, corn, legumes like peanuts. Mm -hmm. Those are very inflammatory for people. And for people who might have arthritic or inflammatory autoimmune conditions, the nightshades. Yeah. It doesn't work for everyone, but I think it's always good to do that in the beginning. And then you can reintroduce and see, 
you know, can I have eggplant and I'm fine or can I eat tomatoes and, and I'm fine for a lot of people, the lectins in these types of foods yeah. are inflammatory and they're not good for them and they actually flare up their symptoms, but it's not for everyone. So it's kind of like the, an elimination diet and then a retest to see what are the factors for you. Yeah. Do you use any sort of testing as a doctor to kind of peel away the layers even more of different food intolerances or sensitivities? Sometimes I will, Yeah. but there's a lot of discrepancy between the tests and if you use different labs and you might not get the same results. Yeah. So a lot of times I'm working without that. Mm -hmm. And if I get to a sticking point where a person kind of you know, doesn't know if they're reacting or not reacting, then I might look at a test like that, understanding that it's not, you know, and explaining to the patient, it's not perfect science. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's, there are certain labs that claim their testing is better than others. And that everybody's saying theirs is the best, <laughs> but honestly, the gold standard is an elimination diet mm -hmm. with a rechallenge. After 28 days? Four weeks. Four is, weeks. Okay. Four weeks is the minimum. Yeah. When people are working with me and I can take a thorough history and understand their individual circumstances, then I might realize just by taking a history how bad a food is for a person. So I will eliminate it for three to six months. So it's much longer than 28 days. Yeah. But these are also people who have been chronically ill. So you need to go deeper. Yeah. You need to dive deeper. Yeah. But for people who are just kind of jumping into this for the first time, I think anyone can do something for four weeks. Yeah. And less than four weeks is not long enough to really get to the point where you can kind of what I call blank slate it, mm. where you're going to recognize how your body really reacts to this. And yeah. a lot of times people are shocked. Um, I had a patient early on take gluten out so she was eating things like pasta and whatnot for weeks. She, when she reintroduced it at that time, she had never had hives. She had pasta and she broke out in full body hives. Oh my goodness. And she says, now I'm worse. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now you made me worse. I could eat pasta before and not get this. Isn't that funny, the psychology? <laughs> <laughs> but now I'm worse. No, and I'm kind of saying it jokingly because before that, she was feeling great. I'm more mentally clear than I've ever been in so long. When she cut it out. Yeah, yeah. when she cut it out and, and I feel so much energy and then she reintroduces it and she gets hives. It's like now your immune system can kind of communicate the truth yeah. of how this is affecting you. And before it was such an overload of antigen that your immune system was so preoccupied, it couldn't tell you how this was really affecting you inside. Right. So after the cleanse phase, mm -hmm. what's the next one? Reintroduction. Reintroduction. So you're reintroducing yeah. the foods kind of, and you do it one by one? One by one. One by one. Do you kind of And you want like to a... wait about three to four days in okay. between, Yeah. you know, say you're testing dairy and you want to see, and there's also a hierarchy. So for dairy, I much prefer introducing fermented dairy first and okay. maybe aged cheeses because they have less lactose. Mm. And then it depends on, again, the person, because if someone has histamine issues, then you have to be careful with fermented foods Yeah, too soon. Can you talk about that a little bit for people who don't know 
histamine issues? Yeah. So histamine intolerance. So if you have a glass of wine and immediately your sinuses get congested, you probably have a histamine intolerance. Another example would be eating uh, cold cuts or like, you know, aged uh, cheeses, meats, but even kimchi. (laughs) Yeah. Anything fermented tends to have higher histamine levels. If that makes you break out in hives or that, or you get really congested, when you eat that and it's not like eating something, you know, because you can sometimes get congested from eating something spicy, but non-spicy. Yeah. That can mean that you have a histamine intolerance and you would actually do well on a low histamine diet. Why would someone have a histamine intolerance? Why would they develop that? Yeah. Why would they develop that? A lot of times I see that as a downstream effect of having long-standing gut issues. Mm. So you don't become histamine intolerant right away, but you develop dysbiosis and imbalance between good and bad bacteria. Leaky gut syndrome, maybe more dysbiosis, more disruptions in the gut microbiome. And eventually you get histamine intolerance because you lose the ability of the lining to produce an enzyme called DAO, diamine oxidase, which breaks down histamine in food. So when your gut lining is not healthy, it's not producing this enzyme enough. So it's almost like you acquire a deficiency in the enzyme. Interesting. Even if you could produce it before. So a lot of people, well, I wasn't histamine intolerant before. How did I become this? Well, your gut is inflamed. This is totally me after having a child. Oh my goodness. I had, yeah, I couldn't. I, I still don't. For the last three years, I haven't had high histamine foods. Do people recover from that? Like, do they so, eventually kind of heal the gut and go back to... So you got to go back. So the foundation is gut healing, making sure that there is no small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So sometimes I see SIBO. that. SIBO. SIBO, yeah. Sometimes I see that connected to histamine intolerance. Yeah. And there could be, sometimes there's genetic factors yeah. that interplay. But I think if you rebalance the gut and heal the gut lining, rebalance the gut microbiome, which can also help digest histamine, then eventually you can start reintroducing yeah. some histamine. And I've noticed that with myself with, oh, um, through my gut healing that yeah. I've been able to tolerate histamine foods better. Oh, interesting. You know? So after the reintroduction, what's the next phase? Next phase is living your life. <laughs> living like, your life. <laughs> yeah. No, really next phase is kind of like, I think... What happens with most people, and there's, and this is just kind of more a superficial take on on my program, the 28 days, because there's more, much more that you do yeah, during the, the 28 day cleanse that I... It's like yoga postures, <laughs> right? I call it gut care. So cleanse, activate, restore, enhance. And yeah. those are all the four pillars yeah. of the program. But the idea is to really redefine your relationship with food and go into your future living after the cleanse as like, you're not on a diet, you're just on a lifestyle. Yeah, It's about kind of keeping yourself eating clean. You know, so there's a lot more that I talk about in the program, like eating organic. And if you eat meat, grass fed, hormone free, free range, wild caught fish, like really trying to be selective about where your food comes from, because it's so important for the health of the gut. And I mean, long-term I think is, is uh, managing stress because one of the biggest hits on the gut is stress. Yeah. You know, I think when a lot of people think of a healthy gut, they think of taking probiotics. And I've heard that like certain probiotics work on certain part of the digestive system. Is that true? 
There are bacteria that predominate in certain sections. Yeah. So for example, bifido, mostly in the large intestine, lactobacillus, a lot of that will live higher up in the small intestine uh, because it can tolerate acid better. Yeah. But the biggest reservoir is still the large intestine. Okay. Where the bacteria live. Yeah. Do you have any favorite probiotic products? Well, my Happy Gut Restore, I think, is really great. Nice. But I use so many different ones in my practice. Uh, I love Megasporbiotic. Okay. So it is a spore-based probiotic. Mm -hmm. But I also use uh, probiotics by Orthomolecular. Yep. Different companies out there that are producing probiotics. Uh, there's another one called Symbiotic 365. Really, it's about experimenting and finding which one works yeah. for each person. And ultimately, it's about eating a wide range of vegetables so that you can get the fibers that your gut bacteria need in order to be healthy. So diversity. So, yeah, yeah. So a diverse diet creates a diverse microbiome. And the funny thing is I heard one of the, I teach for the Institute for Functional Medicine. Yeah. And I heard one of the lecturers at, and last time I was uh, teaching in Mexico, and he said he eats for his microbiome, which I thought was kind of funny, but hey, you've got a hundred trillion of these guys inside of you. Like maybe you should think about how you're eating for them. And if you're eating hamburgers, French fries and sodas and stuff, you're not eating for a good part of that microbiome. You want the gangsters to take over and they're going to make you not feel so great. So if you want the good guys to really predominate, then you need to eat a wide range of vegetables and greens and all sorts of root vegetables. Those are very rich in fibers and create a diverse microbiome. Yeah. You know, we talk about how you can't out-train a bad diet. Like you can't look fit, but, you know, eat terrible. And it sounds like very similar. Like you can't be taking only supplements and not clean up the diet. And I'm sure, like you know, I, I mean, I've spoken to sports professionals yeah. and, and people who are body workers and they'll tell me that they can feel how the muscles react even to touch. And they can tell who has a good diet versus who doesn't have a good diet by just the feeling of the tissue. Yeah, absolutely. Like you can feel, well, this is not a medical term, but we'll feel boggy the tissue will feel boggy when you work on someone and, you know, you just kind of look at them and there's like a overall certain tone to their skin. Like maybe they're a little more red or they look a little bloated. Mm -hmm. So you take that into account and then you can kind of close your eyes and feel the tissue and it just feels like, yeah, it feels boggy, inflamed. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I don't get into body work with people, but I mean, I, I feel, you know, sometimes people's shoulders yeah. and, they can be as hard as a rock. You know, again, it, it affects how the rest of your body is at your water balance and whatnot. Yeah. Where can people find you other than in New York City? <laughs> if they're not in New York City, they could go to my website, happygutlife.com. Great name. I love that. And they can find me on Instagram as Dr. Pedre, on Facebook, Dr. Vincent Pedre, on Twitter. So I'm on all social media I'm pretty active, always trying to put out interesting information and... Uh, Lots of recipes, right? Recipes, yeah. yeah. On Happy Gut Life, they can join my email list and then get my monthly recipe and newsletters that we send out with cool, cool stuff. Amazing. Thank you so much for it being on. It is a pleasure being here. Thank you. Thank you.